0: All right, I want to do a little thought experiment with you. How do you respond, as I had to respond just this week, how do you respond when someone on the street, you're just walking down the street, someone on the street asks you for bus fare money? What's your response? Just get that in your head. Think, maybe think about the last time that happened to you, like it happened to me two days ago. A total stranger comes up to me, asks for money for bus fare. How do you respond? You got it? Okay, now, imagine that you, the person that you run into on the street is your brother, or maybe a cousin, and it's the same question. I need some bus fare money. Now, how do you respond? I bet the responses aren't the same. I'm sure you've heard the old saying, charity begins at home. It's a pretty obvious and basic proverb that we have, secular proverb, right? It, it expresses that, that really deep moral obligation that we feel to take care of those who are closest to us first. We, we abhor the idea that you might neglect people you're related to in order to help a stranger it's it's the idea of kind of moral proximity charity begins at home i thought about this a few years ago when an extended family member of mine came to me and asked me for money like a significant amount of money i didn't hesitate i mean i knew that they were making this request of me because they had made really bad decisions Not exactly the same bad decisions as the guy on the street that asks you for bus fare money, but not entirely different either. So I knew this came from bad decisions, and I knew that we were going to have to figure out a better long-term solution to their cash flow problem than asking me for money. But there was never any question in my mind what I was going to do. This person was family. And so, of course, I was going to help. Charity begins at home. Another way that we kind of get at this idea is an, another secular proverb. Blood is thicker than water. And, and you know, this is true in all sorts of ways. It's not it's not just when we think about our generosity and charity and think about helping people financially. Man, that, that idea, well, that works itself out in, in the way we as Americans think about foreign aid. It it, it informs the way many of us think about the whole immigration debate. Here's, Here's the way this works, and this is kind of true for all of us. The more I identify with you, the more likely I am to be generous toward you. The more I identify with you, the closer I feel to you, the more likely I'm going to be generous toward you. And this is just a common human thing. And this is where Christianity stands out as unusual. From the very beginning, Christians were known as people who were extraordinarily generous towards strangers. I mean, from Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan to the way missionaries went out, not just with the gospel, but they started hospitals and orphanages and did all sorts of practical help for the people that they were working with, to, to frankly, the fact that you pay my salary. You realize most religions don't pay their pastor's salary, and, and a mom has to go out and have a job, B- Buddhist monks beg, thank you for not making me beg. That's kind of unusual, actually, amongst world religions. We're, we're really the only ones who do it. Uh, you, you, could, you could point to our own benevolence fund here at Henson. Christians give money to people who have no natural claim on their generosity. Why? Why do we do that? Well, one answer to that question is found in the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. So, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, This is found on page 1022, 1022, chapter 16. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses. The big number on the page is the chapter number. The little numbers are the verse numbers. Let me just Read the first verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. Actually, just the first half of verse 1. Now, about the collection for the saints. Now, about the collection for the saints. We are almost at the end of 1 Corinthians, for those of you that have been walking around, you know, we started this way back in September. We are almost at the end. Paul has just finished this sort of glorious chapter 15 on the resurrection, reminding the Corinthians of their hope of the resurrection to encourage them to stand firm to the end. It would have been a great place to end the letter. And, and then it's almost like, like Paul is like reviewing maybe the letter that they had sent him to make sure he hadn't missed anything. And it's like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, about the, about the collection, We might say, about the offering. It seems that the Corinthians had some questions about this offering, this collection that Paul had set up. Why why are we doing this? How are we supposed to do this? And in our passage this morning, Paul is going to give a lot of practical instructions about their generosity. But behind those practical instructions is a very powerful argument. We're going to put it on the screen because this is what I want you to understand this morning. Our common identity compels our uncommon generosity. Our common identity as Christians compels our very uncommon generosity. Now, we're going to unpack that in in two steps, but as, as we do... I want you to consider your own generosity, and I want you to consider what your generosity says about your identity. All right, so first, our common identity. Let me, let's go back to verse one. Now, about the collection for the saints, do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. We're going to stop right there. Paul does not explain what's going on here, right? Right? Uh, he, they know what it is. He doesn't bother explaining it here. But basically what's happened is he has organized a, a massive financial collection, a contribution for the relief of the impoverished Jewish church back in Jerusalem. It seems a, a famine had crushed Palestine right about this time. And and these Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem, they've been thrown out of the synagogue, which means they've been cut off from the normal social safety net that they had. There was no welfare state back then. It, was, it would have been the synagogue that took care of you. They've been cut off from that, and, and they are suffering. And so Paul has asked the Gentile churches in Galatia and in, in Macedonia and there in, in Greece where Corinth is to kind of rally to their support. Now, he talks about this at length in other places. This is why we know about this. So you can read about this in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, or Romans 15, in, in uh, among other places, it's a really big undertaking, and it's a really big deal to Paul. But what I want us to notice first is the way Paul characterizes it. Th- this, he doesn't characterize it as charitable giving. He doesn't characterize it as, oh, you know, we, we need to help the people that are suffering. No, he characteri- characterizes it as the collection for the saints, or we could say the holy ones. Now, what does he mean when he talks about saints? He's, he's not using that word the way Roman Catholics have come to use that word or Eastern Orthodox have come to use that word to designate people that they've decided are especially holy, more holy than everybody else. That's not what he has in mind. No, the, the word saint is just the basic New Testament designation for a Christian, for a believer. Christians are saints, All Christians are saints, people who have been made holy, people who have been set aside for God and to God through Jesus Christ. And so, where we need to start to even understand what Paul is talking about here is the good news of the gospel. Christianity is good news because Christianity gives us a new identity through a new relationship with God. You know, we all walk around with multiple identities, right? I'm I'm a a son and a brother and a husband and a father and an employee. You're you're the same. You've got lots of identities. Today is Mother's Day, right? A day in which we particularly honor somebody for their identity because of a particular relationship that they have as mom. Well, the thing is. While all of us have lots of different identities, all of us have a common identity, a common identity based on our relationship to God who made us. You know what that identity is? It's rebel. It's traitor. Every single one of us has decided to, to reject both God's authority and God's love and go our own way. And and that that has consequences. Not only does it give us this identity of rebel, no, I mean, it it impacts our lives. It it means that we walk around with a guilty conscience, whether we really want to acknowledge it or not. It means many of us walk around with a, a kind of inescapable sense of shame because we know we're not who we're supposed to be. Ultimately, it brings with it the Consequence of God's judgment, judgment and death. But here's the good news of Christianity the gospel of Jesus Christ actually gives us a new identity. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to become a man in order to identify with us, not just in our humanity, but in our sin. He was baptized to identify with us, not because he had any sin but so that he could take on ours. And then Jesus identified with us in the guilt and the shame of our sin by taking on our punishment and our disgrace on the cross. Jesus identified with us in the very worst aspects of who we are. And yet he himself was without sin. And so God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead. And now the good news of the gospel is that he gives us his identity. This identity of son of God, holy, perfect, beloved, becomes our identity as we repent of our rebellion. And as we put our faith in Jesus Christ, trusting that he died for us so that he might give us his life, his identity. Friend, if you're not a Christian, nothing I I say from here on out is gonna make any sense uh, unless you understand this. We would love for you to become just like us, Christians, with this new identity, beloved of God. I know that might be a big ask. That might seem kind of crazy at the moment in your life. I'd love to talk to you about it. We'd love to give you an opportunity to look at the Gospels, to look at Jesus' life and His message, and to consider what it would mean for you to have a different identity than you have now, the identity of one who is holy, beloved, loved of God the Father. Please come talk to me afterwards about this, or or talk to the person that you came with talk to anybody here in this church that looks like they belong, that might know something about the gospel. Don't leave today without thinking about what it would mean to have this new identity in Jesus Christ. The result of this new identity, for those of us who are Christians, is that we don't relate to each other the same way anymore. We, we now relate to each other differently than we did before we came to know Christ. This is actually what a local church is all about. We're, we're, we haven't gathered this morning as Americans or Portlanders. They, they, they weren't gathering back then as Corinthians or Galatians. We, we don't gather as white people or as Asian American people, we don't gather as boomers or millennials. We we gather with a common identity. Uh, I'm I'm often struck by how people look at my kids. I've got five kids. They all look really different, but they all look like Lawrence's. Like you can tell. Well, that's that's us, all in Christ. Oh yeah, we we look different. We come from different places, but there's a there's like a family resemblance. And there's a family name. We are Christians, Christians, a spiritual family, brothers and sisters in Christ. We are, therefore, an assembly of saints gathered in one location, this location, around one family meal, the Lord's Supper, by one gospel message that's proclaimed in our baptism, For one gospel mission, which is to see the family grow. Now, like any family, you got to be born into it, right? Now, in this particular family, you're not born into it by being born into a Christian family. No, you've got to be born again. You have to be born from above by the Spirit. And and, and of course, uh, like any family, we're concerned when a family member isn't showing up for dinner right? Uh, this, this is really what a, a local church is all about. This is what church membership is all about, which might be kind of a foreign concept to some of you. It's, it's the way a family works, like being aware of each other, taking responsibility for each other, concerned about one another's welfare. Uh, you know, Jonas Yarborough sometimes shows up at my house for dinner. We love it when Jonas is there. But when he doesn't show up, we're not concerned. <laughs> Sorry, Janice. <Genesis. laughs> no, because, because he's not in our family, right? Now, if James doesn't show up for dinner, we're concerned. We, we, we notice. We, we think he should be there because he, he's part of the Lawrence family, right? Th- this is what being a part of a church is about. About recognizing, oh, this is my family. And they're going to be concerned about me if I don't show up. They're going to be concerned for my welfare. And I'm going to be concerned for theirs. If you're a Christian, you want to be in a family. Not, not just the big, wide, invisible, worldwide family, because that family's not going to notice if you don't show up. That family's not going to notice if you're not doing well spiritually. Now, if you're a Christian, you want to be a member of a local church, like this church that Paul's writing to. Because the family notices how you're doing. They're concerned about it. They're there for you. Now, like any family, there are various branches to the family. Right? Uh, And the the closer the branch, the the easier it is to to do things together. So my, my wife is way more at ease spending time at her sister's house for the weekend than my sister's house for the weekend. Like that in-law thing, is it's real. We all get that if, if we've been married. Well, it's, it's kind of the same with, with churches. It's a big family out there. And if, if, if a church is, is, is being rightly formed by the gospel, the right preaching of the word, the right administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, man, they are part of the family. But the The more like-minded another church is, the easier it is to partner with them. It's like you're a closer branch of the family with them. Here at Henson, historically, that's always meant conservative Baptists, which are no longer called conservative Baptists. They're now called Church Venture. I don't know if you guys got the memo, uh, but it, it, the, the denomination changed its name. But historically, that's always been kind of our close, family of churches. And and it remains that, that family of churches that we're a part of. But here's the thing. God doesn't have grandchildren. Did you know that? God has no grandchildren. Just because a, a church or a, a group of churches has been associated with the gospel in the past, that doesn't guarantee that they continue to be. I'm so thankful that the conservative Baptists continue to be deeply committed to the gospel. But we've also become a pretty big, wide family. Uh, And and so, I I think that we always want to remember that the identity as churches to other churches that binds us closest is the gospel itself, not some historic association. But the gospel as it's getting worked out today, And, and the way that gospel is shaping our life together, the way the gospel is shaping our philosophies of ministry, and our way of doing church together. Now, this is one of the reasons why the elders have recommended to the congregation, and we're going to be voting on it next week, that, that we make a new association. We don't want to leave our old association. We're not leaving conservative Baptists. That's still a good gospel association. But the elders are recommending that we join a new association of churches as well. And as Baptists, we get to do that. We can be a part of as many associations as we want, uh, called the Association of Churches for Missions and Evangelism. We we think this is going to make sense for us because this is going to be a way of partnering with other churches that, oh, they might not have been historically conservative Baptists, but they are right with us on the gospel, and the way we do church, and the way we think about missions and evangelism. We think that coming alongside more like-minded churches in our region and across the country is going to be good for gospel ministry. All partnership in ministry begins right here in our common identity as God's people, fellow saints who have been given everything we have And so gladly, gladly give what we have for the sake of building up the churches, sending out gospel workers so that the family will grow. All right, we have a common identity. But second, that common identity compels our uncommon generosity. It compels our uncommon generosity. Look at verse 2. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering so that no collections will need to be made when I come. When I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gifts to Jerusalem. If it is suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I will be traveling through Macedonia, and perhaps I will remain with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want to see you now just in passing since I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord allows. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me, yet many oppose me. If Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear while with you because he is doing the Lord's work just as I am. So let no one look down on him. Send him on his way in peace so that he can come to me because I am expecting him with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos I strongly urged him to come to you with the brothers, but he was not at all willing to come now. However, he will come when he has an opportunity. All right, Paul gives some instructions here for what their generous support of fellow Christians should look like. And this section kind of breaks up into two sections. You've got support for other gospel churches in verses two to four, and support for gospel workers in verses 5 to 12. And we're going we're to think about that in just a minute. But what I want you to note right off the bat is how unusual, how uncommon this would have been back then and still is today. Why should a church in Greece care about a church in Palestine? There's not only the Jew-Gentile divide, which is still a big deal for them, But there's really not anything in it for the Corinthians. They're unlikely to ever meet. You know, there are no, like, international church conferences going on that they're all going to gather at. This financial partnership, it is strictly one way. The money is leaving Corinth, and it's going to Jerusalem. There's nothing coming back from Jerusalem because there's nothing there. They're so poor. Why, Why not keep the money... And use it locally. Why why not keep the money and build up their own church? Or why not keep the money and use it to plant other Greek churches? Friends, I think the only reason to help, and it's the reason that Paul grounds this in, this, this unusual generosity, is their common identity. Just like I felt compelled to help my family member financially, Paul thinks they should feel compelled too. And he thinks we should feel compelled. We show to the world's eyes unusual generosity on a, on a very regular basis here at Henson, both to, to churches, to, to other churches, and, and to gospel workers for no other reason than our common identity in Christ and their faithfulness in gospel work. There's so many ways that I could kind of point this out in our own life we could we could start with with our own benevolence fund right where we help people here in our church that were not related to biologically but that were related to spiritually and we and we help them out with with material needs through the benevolence fund much like Corinth is being asked to help the church in Jerusalem with some material help but but it, but it's not just about physical needs no it it looks like the way this church gives itself, to equip other churches' pastors. I mean, it would make sense if you guys wanted to spend some of the church's budget to, to better equip your own pastors, because that just comes back and helps you. But no, this church spends a lot of money and effort and time and energy equipping other churches' pastors through like the Simeon Trust workshops or, or, or the Nine Marks Conference or the pastoral residency program that we run here. Where we routinely invest a lot of time and money and energy into men who are not sticking around, but we're going to send them out to serve other churches. It's only that you, you guys generously send me and the other staff and the elders to preach and teach elsewhere. I mean, this morning Dan Schreiner is preaching at, at Edgewood Bible Church up in Edgewood, Washington as a way to serve and encourage that church. And he's there because you've sent him. You've made that possible. We, we, we've spent, gladly, this church has, has spent its resources to, to support church plants and church revitalizations. A, a church plant like Redemption Church or a revitalization effort like Jeff Selwood, at, Jeff Lassine at Selwood Community Church in so many material ways this church j- just makes me really proud to be your pastor because you're 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 investing you you you're spending your resources for the good of others not just yourself actually i i asked mark wickham to count this up for us we are materially investing in at least 46 different churches around the world from Pretoria to Puyallup right from Chiang Mai to Chicago it is one of the things that I am most proud about of being your pastor that you gladly give your push your resources out for the benefit of others so so Maybe you're thinking, I'd like to grow in generosity. I have a suggestion for you. Consider your mom. You want want an example of generosity? Mothers are an extraordinary example of generosity. They, They literally take resources from their own body and use it to make you. And then they keep doing it. They keep giving, they keep pouring in, and I mean, I'm not casting aspersion on any specific children here, but children often aren't really grateful, (laughs) at least until they get a little older, and moms keep doing it. They, they, They keep pouring out. Moms are a great example a great picture, I think, of the generosity, the generous life that the Lord calls us to, both individually and as a church. So again, thank you, moms, for generously pouring yourself out for people who really aren't ever going to pay you back. Now, let me just say to moms Moms, of course, you're, you're, you're doing this, and you, you do it particularly for those that have a natural claim on your love and affection. And kind of what I'm talking about here is, as Christians, we do this for people who have no natural claim on our affection and our resources. So, so moms, let me encourage you, as you're discipling your kids, are you thinking about discipling them in this kind of generosity, a gospel-driven, gospel-grounded generosity? Are you thinking about how to to raise up kids who are not just, you know, good kids and obedient kids and successful kids, but kids who, who will be generous with their lives, generous with the resources that God entrusts them someday for the sake of the gospel? Well, what should this generosity look like? I want us to just walk through... With the time that remains, uh, these uh, 11 remaining verses, really, actually, we'll look at all 12 again. Uh, I want to highlight six things from Paul's instructions that should characterize our uncommon generosity. I don't normally do sermons like this, but here we go. We're going to move quickly. So, first, our generosity is corporate. It's corporate. You see that there in verse 1, now about the collection for the saints, do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. People aren't just sending their individual gifts to the church in Jerusalem. No, they're they're collecting it together. They're actually pooling it in order to accomplish something much bigger than they could accomplish on their own if they were all just trying to do stuff individually. So, so friends, and particularly members, this is why we encourage you to give to the work of this church and to make your local church, your main source of Christian charitable giving. We're not saying you shouldn't give to other important ministries. You should. But we wanna, the elders want to encourage you to, to make your own local church the main place where you are giving, because as we give together, we can accomplish a lot more together than we can accomplish individually and separately. And this seems to be the pattern of the early church. So, our generosity is corporate. Second, our generosity is systematic. You see that there in verse two? On the first day of the week, on the first day of the week, every week, set something aside. Now, I'm gonna pause on generosity here for a minute. This, by the way, is yet more evidence that Christians from the beginning gathered on Sunday. Not on Saturday night, not on Friday afternoon, on Sunday. Sunday is the Lord's Day, and Paul assumes that, that they're gathering on that day, the first day of the week. And and what he's highlighting here is that the offering is actually part of their corporate public worship together. When they come together, they should set something aside. And notice that it is systematic. It is intentional. So how can we do that? Well, there are lots of different ways of doing that. I would encourage you, particularly if you're a member of this church, but this is, this is good for all Christians, on a, on a regular basis, but probably at least once a year, you should sit down, you should look at your income, and you should think about, what am I giving this year? And then be very intentional about it, about making it happen. Pa- Paul says, every week, think about what you're setting aside. Uh, uh, this, this is something that, that Adrian and I did from the very beginning of our marriage. We would sit down once a year and kind of evaluate our finances and think through, okay, we know things might change and we'll make adjustments if they do, but given what we know about our finances, how are we going to be systematic and intentional about giving money to our local church and to other gospel ministry? My It didn't exist when we started this, but my favorite way now is setting up an automatic bank draft. I know some of you think that's very unspiritual. It's like a really unspiritual thing to tell your bank to send the church a check on a regular basis. I'm just quoting 1 Corinthians 16 too. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the point is, Paul wants you to be systematic. He wants you to be intentional. He wants you to be regular. The bank won't forget. The decision to set something up like that is just as spiritual a decision as it is to try to remember to write a check every week. Just saying. Uh, it's, It's not an unspiritual thing to set up an automatic bank draft. However you decide to do it, you should be systematic and intentional and regular in your generosity. Third, our generosity is proportional. It is proportional. Again, look there in verse 2. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering. Okay, so the New Testament does not teach a flat tax, 10% tax or tithe for everyone like the Old Testament did. The Old Testament taught a 10% flat tithe for everyone. That is not what the New Testament teaches. Rather, as Paul says here, people are to give as they are able. They, they are to give proportionally. Now That means that those with more are going to give more and should give more. And those with less are going to give less. It is in keeping with the way the Lord is allowing you to prosper right now. Now, I, I want to encourage, particularly because we're here in America, yeah, if I, if I was giving this sermon uh, to, to a church uh, maybe in, in Zambia for, where, where Chopo pastors, who, who we heard from last, last week, last Sunday evening, I, I might have some different things to say. But to us as Americans, I mean, we just need to understand how rich we are, relatively speaking. You may not feel very rich, but I'm telling you, you are extraordinarily rich in terms of the world today, and certainly in terms of the history of the world. So I, I want to encourage our congregation, and, and, and this won't apply equally to everybody. So the shoe doesn't fit, please don't put it on. But I want to encourage us to think about not just allowing our standard of living to keep tracking up with our income as it gradually tracks up over the course of our career. What if, as our income increased, as our careers matured and income typically increases, what if we get to a point where our standard of living hits where it's just going to be, and it's fine, and it doesn't need to get any higher, and, and instead our generosity increases? What if our, gener- our increasing generosity was tied to our increasing incomes, not just our standard of living? Can you imagine what might happen with gospel ministry if more Americans decided, yeah, this is enough? Yes, I could buy more toys. Yes, I could get a bigger house. Yes, I could, you know, fill in the blank. But I don't need to. Instead, I want to see that money put to work for the sake of the gospel. I'm not trying to guilt anyone here. I'm actually just trying to get you to maybe think about it in a slightly different way. Now, if, if that's what we need to consider in terms of those maybe who have more, note too that no one is not giving. No one is not giving. Those who have less are giving less, but they're, but they're giving. And, and, and no one is feeling the burden to carry the whole thing by themselves, nobody should feel like, well, because I have so much money, I, just, I should just cover the church's budget. If that's you, I'd love to talk to you. But that's not actually what Paul wants. Paul, Paul wants all of us in this together. One implication of this, I think, is that, that, that gifts for gospel ministry are given freely. There's no coercion here. This is not a tax. As we often say, there's there's no fee for service going on. No, we give freely because freely we've been given. So next week at our members meeting, the elders are going to present the proposed budget for next year. And some of you are thinking, you planned this, didn't you? And the answer is, no, I didn't. I was as surprised as you are that when I got to this particular Sunday, we were in 1 Corinthians 16. But there it is. Next week, the elders are presenting the proposed budget. So here's, if you're you're not a member and and you give to support the work of this church, thank you. Thank you for giving. If you are a member though, again, thank you for giving. But I, I want you to go into the discussion next week as you see the budget. I wanna encourage you to go into that discussion thinking about how is the Lord prospering me? how is the Lord prospering me now? And then consider what it would mean for you to take personal responsibility for some portion of the budget, some percent of the budget in light of how the Lord is prospering you. And then be very intentional and systematic about owning that and being responsible for it. Uh, there's a, there's a book called God and Money that I really want to recommend to you. And if you come tonight, Mark might have a couple of copies to give away. I think it's one of the best things out there for Christians to read, thinking about their finances, thinking about the, the use of their money. I like it even better than Randy Alcorn's great book. Randy's stuff on, on, on money and giving is quite good. I think this is even better. It's called God and Money. We'll try to get it on the bookstall and in the library. And like I said, I think Mark's got some copies tonight. We don't like talking about money. It makes us feel uncomfortable. But we need to think about it because this is part of the way we are showing who we are and whose we are. All right. Fourth, our generosity is accountable. It's accountable. Look there in verses three and four. When I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it is suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. What's going on there? Money always provides an opportunity for abuse and therefore mistrust and distrust. And that can rip a church apart. So Paul understands that this gift is going to be transported over a great distance, and it would be very easy for this gift along the way to get smaller. It would be very easy for this gift along the way to just disappear. And so he's concerned that the men who are entrusted to take it to Jerusalem are actually recommended by the whole congregation. They kind of have that congregational seal of approval on them, that these are trustworthy men and they are known men, and therefore they will be held accountable. He even says that he'll send letters of recommendation, may even accompany them himself. I I want you to know, because you all are the ones who support the work of this church, that we take this issue of accountability very seriously. The elders take this quite seriously, both internally and externally. So it's why we have... A very transparent budget process, if you come next week and you get a budget, every line will be explained and justified it 's why we give regular financial reports and we and you guys ask questions about them and Mark is always prepared to give an answer and he 's happy to talk with you about it offline as well it 's why we have really careful processes internally in the office for like cash control, like counting the money and and reporting the money, and depositing the money. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons why we always prefer, if we're going to help somebody with benevolence, to pay the benevolence directly to the vendor or creditor rather than to the individual. Be, because we want to have a, a system, a process, that fosters trust by everyone involved. It's why there are, there are limits, dollar limits on, on what the elders can do with surplus money in the budget without bringing it back to the congregation for approval first. And it's a pretty low number. It, it, it's why the elders don't, we don't, like, we don't have our own checkbook. There's not a slush fund out there that the elders can just individually write checks off of. No, everything goes through accounting. Everything goes through an accountable process. It's also why we look really carefully at our supported workers' budgets. How are they spending their money? It's another reason why in all of this, character matters. So as you think about elders and deacons as they're nominated to this congregation, as we uh, you know, affirm them and recognize them in those roles, it's not just that they're competent, is that they have the kind of character that we can trust because these are the people that are making the decisions about the money you give and how it's to be spent. We don't want in any of these ways to ever give the enemy an opportunity to sow seeds of distrust and discord in the congregation. Now, if that's important for us corporately, how about you personally, and individually. Does any member of this church, other than your spouse, know about your personal finances? Does anyone really know how you use your money, spend your money? Are, are you accountable to, to anyone who's not related to you? Is there anyone in your life who can ask you hard questions about what you're doing with your money. I want to be really clear. It's your money. You are free to use it. But if we as a church benefit from transparency, from accountability, wouldn't you benefit from it too? Fifth, our generosity personal. It's personal. Look at verse 5. I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I will be traveling through Macedonia, and perhaps I will remain with you or even spend the winter so so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want to see you now just in passing since I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord allows, but I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me, yet many oppose me. All right. So Paul's telling them about his travel plans. He's explaining how he wants to come see them. But if he came now, it had to be a really brief visit. He doesn't want to do that. So that's why he's not coming now. He really wants to come uh, for, for a more extended visit. But the key thing that I want you to notice here is he doesn't want to just visit for fun and fellowship. No, he wants them, verse six, to send me on my way wherever I go. That's actually the language of financial support. That's what he's talking about there. It's kind of almost technical language. He is engaged in gospel ministry. And and everybody, most people know about Paul. He was a tent maker. He tried to defray his costs by making and selling tents. He didn't want to be a burden on the brand new churches that he was planting. But there were still a lot of expenses involved with this ministry because it wasn't just him. There was a whole team Their their travel expenses to get to new areas, there's personal support, there's support for the the larger team that he's a part of. And so what's clear as you look at these verses is that once a church was on its feet, like Corinth, he expects and wants them to now be a part of supporting his work financially. And he points out, without bragging, I think, I'm worth it like this is this is this is this is a ministry that's worth giving to i he he talks about this this open door uh, for fruitful ministry in Ephesus that he is persevering in despite the opposition so in a kind of gentle way he's pointing out he's he's asking them i want you to financially support me and he's kind of pointing out and I, and i'm good for it i'm i'm proven i'm i'm known i've i've been tested and here's here's the here's the fruit of the ministry not just you but what's happening in Ephesus. So what does this mean for us? Well, One of the things it means is that the main expense of ministry, the main expense, whether we're talking about ministry in this church or in another church like a a, a church plant or a church revitalization that we're a part of or we're talking about missions, sending global workers abroad, the main expense is people. That's the main expense. Supporting ministry means supporting proven, fruitful people who are gifted and called and effective in the work to which we have sent them out or set them aside for. Ministry is not done by buildings. I like buildings. We have a lot of them here at Tenson. They're really useful, but by themselves, they don't do anything. Buildings don't do ministry. Ministry is not done by programs. Programs can be really helpful. It can be, it can be useful to have some structure and, and some different kinds of, of, of plans and, 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 and structure to our ministry, but the program itself doesn't do the ministry. It's people who do the ministry. The vast majority of ministry in this church is done by people who aren't paid to do it. It's done by you. You all are the main ministers of this congregation. You all accomplish every week in one another's lives and in your neighbor's lives and your friend's lives. Boy, every week you accomplish more than I could do by myself in a year. So most of the ministry is unpaid ministry. But we do understand that it is helpful for a local church to have some people who are engaged in it full-time. Full-time because they are particularly gifted, particularly useful in equipping all the other ministers, that would be you, in the work of ministry. So it is not a bug, it's not a problem, that 52% of our budget goes towards staff expenses. That's not a bug, that's a feature. That's the way it's supposed to be because ministry is people and it's done by people. And then when you add in all of our support for missions outside this local church, both domestic and international, fully two-thirds of our budget is supporting people, gifted, proven, called people who do the work of ministry. And that means it's really important that the workers that we support are workers that are worthy of being supported, that they're proven workers, that they've been tested, that they're gifted. But Before we send anybody out to the, the mission field, Neil and the elders have developed a whole process of evaluation and testing because we understand we're sending them with your money. Before we call a staff pastor whose salary you're gonna pay, there's a whole process of evaluation We're kind of slow. Jeff left what two years ago, and we still haven't replaced him. We're working on it, but but we don't want to just hire anybody. We we want to hire people that you are glad to support with your with your dollars, with your giving. So there's a process of evaluation. We don't want to waste your money on people who are not proven, who are not known, who are not trusted. There are so many gifted workers out there. I'm particularly thinking about on the mission field, but but also in in churches around the country, there's so many gifted workers that, that are worthy of their hire. Sadly, there are also too many who are kind of hiding out on the mission field or on a church staff somewhere, getting paid but not worthy of being paid. I've seen it again and again. We want the former, not the latter. So we are committed to this process of evaluating and testing before we commit. And we're committed to ongoing evaluation after we've committed. All right, sixth and finally. Our generosity is relational. It's relational. Look at verse 10. If Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear while with you, because he's doing the Lord's work just as I am. So let no one look down on him. Send him on his way in peace so that he can come to me, because I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brothers, but he was not at all willing to come now. However, he will come when he has an opportunity. All right, so Paul wants the Corinthians to send Timothy on his way as well. You see that there in verse 11. Send him on his way in peace. So Paul is still thinking about financial support. It's the same language that he used about himself. He is wanting them to financially support Timothy in this ministry. But it's clear in this section he's not just thinking about money. Paul is concerned that Timothy has nothing to fear from them. That's an interesting phrase and that no one looked down on him. This is relational language. Why is Paul all of a sudden bringing relational language in? I think it's because he knows money complicates relationships. Money complicates relationships. It can be used to manipulate people, coerce people. I remember a friend of mine who was a pastor... Uh, once made a decision in his church. This is a long, long time ago. And uh, some of the older folks in the church didn't like that decision. It was, I don't even remember what it was. It wasn't a big deal, but it was something that they didn't like. It was change. They didn't like it. And and one of the older members came up to him at the door after he preached his sermon. And uh, she said to him... Well, she expressed to him her displeasure at the decision that had been made. And my friend responded graciously, but trying to explain. And, and this, this woman said, Pastor, I give a lot of money to this church. And she didn't even need to finish the sentence. She knew and he knew what she was saying. If I don't get what I want, I might just take my money and go somewhere else. To which my friend, in a moment of I think Holy Spirit inspired pastoral genius, said, We'll call her Velma. That wasn't her name. Velma, what kind of pastor would I be if I listened to talk like that? And she said, You're right. She still wasn't happy with the decision. Money is complicated. Money can be used to coerce, to manipulate. Paul don't want that. Money can also be used to substitute for relationships. Serves in place of the relationship. Paul don't want that either. Paul wants a robust gospel partnership between he and Timothy and the church in Corinth. And so he's spending a little bit of his own relational capital at this moment to help foster that partnership, that relationship. By contrast by contrast, Apollos is not willing to come at this point, verse 12. Apparently, they had also asked, "Hey, when's Apollo's coming to visit?" You remember back at the beginning, they really like Apollos. Paul, they're not so hot on. They really like Apollos. So when's he coming to visit? And Paul has urged him to come, but to no avail. Now, Paul doesn't tell us why. Maybe it just wasn't convenient. Apollos was there in Ephesus, also involved in the same ministry with Paul. Maybe he also had an open door and he didn't want to walk away from it. But maybe, just maybe, Apollos is aware that some are dividing the church in his name, and he wants none of it. And he's not about, to go back to Corinth in the midst of that? We don't know. Here's what we do know. Gospel ministry is funded by money, but it runs on relationships. It runs on trust. We never want to just send our money. Nor do we ever want our workers on the field or our staff here to feel coerced, or fearful, or manipulated because of money. Money serves relationships, not the other way around. And this is, of course, why we want to work on the relationships. This is why we want to foster robust relationships with our workers on the field. It's easy. It's easier. Some of you tell me it's not easy. I'll take that. And it's not always easy to have a relationship with me. That's on me. But it's easier to have a relationship with me because I'm here. It's harder to have relationships with our workers on the field, and we want to encourage that. We want to encourage robust relationships with our gospel workers. It's why we spend time with them before we send them. It's why we, we want to have this ongoing relationship, and so we make space whenever they come back to... to to speak to the church like in a Sunday school class or a Sunday evening or after a Sunday evening service. It, it's why on a regular basis, we're trying to get elders out to the field to be with them. We want to try to visit every worker at least every other year if possible to build and foster and encourage and strengthen those relationships. I think one of the things that we've heard most from our supported workers on the field that they've liked since I came was that emphasis on relationship. Our workers feel better known, better listened to. They they appreciate that we've, we've actually made some effort at this. We don't want to control anyone. The relationship is not meant to meddle in their work overseas. You notice Paul doesn't make Apollos go. I found that fascinating. Paul the apostle could have Exercise apostolic authority and made Apollos go. No, he doesn't do that. Apollos is free to make those decisions. It's the same with our workers. We don't want to control or meddle, but because partnership requires trust, trust requires relationship. A generation ago, this church was extraordinarily faithful in sending out tons of people to the mission field. They, they, they send out their friends. We are sending a new generation of people out. And if you're younger in this church, you know we're sending out your friends. So I want to say to the older folks in the church, you who have made what we're doing now possible, You who gave so faithfully for so many years to send out your friends to the field. Boy, we could not be sending a new generation if you had not done what you did 20, 30, 40 years ago. I just want to say to you, thank you for setting that example. Thank you for being so faithful for so long. Thank you for welcoming them back when they come back. Carol, we're so glad you're back. I also understand, though, for for some of the older members of the church, you might not feel like you know the people that we're sending out. They're not your friends anymore. I get it. It's hard to get to know some of the younger people that we're sending out. I want to acknowledge that that might make you, as somebody who's been so committed to missions for so long, feel somewhat distant from what's happening in missions at Henson now. Now. I don't quite know how to change that. I do want to encourage you, you older faithful saints on whose shoulders we stand, I want to encourage you to try to get to know this new generation we're sending out. They're they're not your friends, I get it. They're the young people's friends. I want to assure you that they are every bit as worth sending as your friends that we sent 30, 40 years ago. You will enjoy getting to know them every bit as well. We already do this, but let's continue to show generous hospitality to our workers, our gospel workers, whether they're on staff here or we've sent them abroad. This is how relationships are maintained. I also want to encourage us to to think about showing hospitality and generosity to the trusted partners of our trusted partners. When we send people out, we send them into a a ministry ecosystem, And, and they're getting to know people and they're getting to know ministries that we don't know. But sometimes they want to introduce us to them. I think that's a really exciting thing. This is why we had Chopo Mwanza here last week, Uh, not because we support him, but because he's really involved in the work that Tommy is doing in South Africa. And actually, he and I were able to have a conversation because he's got students from Mozambique in his school, and we started talking about ways that his school could maybe go help the Nels. People don't do ministry in a vacuum. So the elders are really committed to thinking more and more about where are we already present in the Middle East or in Africa or in Asia? And are there hubs there that we can lean into more and encourage our workers as they are partnering with others? I think this is also a way in which ACME is going to really serve us well, the Association of Churches for Missions and Evangelism, as we learn about other trusted partners who work with people that we already trust. We want to know about open doors of ministry that our workers are engaged with despite the opposition they face and we always want to be open to new strategic relationships that we can get behind with uncommon generosity so i just want to ask you again how can you grow in your generosity given this extraordinary good gospel work that is going on here and around the world how can you grow in your budget in your in your uncommon generosity How can we grow in our uncommon generosity? Next week, you're going to see the elders' idea of how we can grow as we present the budget. I just want to ask you to be praying about it. This isn't all that the Bible has to say about generosity. But it's clear that for Paul, our common identity compels our uncommon generosity. You know, if you could look at my bank statement or my trace out my Venmo transactions, you would quickly figure out who I'm related to. Charity or generosity begins at home. I'm convinced that when you look at our church's budget, you see the same, a spiritual family Connected to people around the world with whom we have nothing naturally in common but Jesus Christ. And that's enough. And it shows in our generosity a generosity that is uncommon to the world, but deeply common to Christians. Brothers and sisters, What does your generosity show? Does it reveal your identity in Christ? Would anything need to change so that it does? Let's pray. Take just a moment and reflect upon what God has given you in and through Christ and how that might impact your generosity going forward. Heavenly Father, you have been generous with us beyond imagining. You've given us your son and in him you have given us everything. For you've given us yourself. Lord, we pray that we would not find our identity in treasures here that rust, that are stolen, that decay. We pray that we find our treasure in you. And, and that knowing that, knowing that we are rich in Christ, that that would set us free to be rich towards those who do not know Christ with the good news of the gospel. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.